Good morning. In Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You'll surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman said that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You might notice that those verses were not from John, because, you know, they're not. They're from Genesis. We're reading through John. Uh, this is the little book that we've got, and so it's literally just the uh, the book of John. It's got some journals in and things like that, but the main goal is for us to focus on John. Uh, we, we spent all last year reading through the whole Bible and teaching through it, and this year we said, hey, let's slow down and just slowly read through the teachings of Jesus and say, man, if, if the whole Bible is one unified story that climaxes, that points to King Jesus, and everything since Jesus is about living and following him because he is true life, then we should probably read his life and understand his teachings and what he desires of us, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, you're a church, that's probably, you have probably some idea if you're here that, oh yeah, they're going to talk about Jesus as a Christian church, because Christianity is based off Jesus, right? So that's what we're going to do, and that's the whole goal, because we believe Jesus is everything. Say, Jesus is everything? Yeah, that's it. So there is just like a, we're like at level five or six right now, and I'd like most of you to just bump it up to eight, because I'm real excited. There is so much we're going to go through today, like we're Bible nerding out today. And so uh, if you could just take a moment to turn it up a little bit, get excited. I'm going to, I'll, I'll give you a moment. Okay, you excited now? Good. That's fine. No, it's okay. I mean, maybe I could play a video, do a dance to get you excited. I just, I, I put it on you. You get excited. This is a good day, right? Um, we're going to be reading through this. Um, if you uh, could grab uh, your book like this, if you've got a John book. If not, there's a uh, hardbacked black Bible in front of you, in the seat in front of you. Grab a Bible. Open to John 2. If you can stand the temptation of the flickering pixel device that you've got, the supercomputer in your pocket, that's fine. You can use that as well. Uh, I'm not anti-phones. I just know the distraction that's there. Whatever. We want to read the words of God. Because we, we say this a lot in our church, but I want to make sure we say it every week. What I say, well, the quotes that I have in here that are in blue that aren't from Scripture, all those things come and go. But the word of God is eternal. It lasts forever. And so the reason we teach the gospel every week, the reason we read tons of scripture every week is because those are the only things we know. That's the only true story. Last week we talked about John chapter 2 and um, the first sign, the wedding at Cana. We're going to be talking about that again because there is just so much juicy goodness to squeeze from that story. Oh my goodness. I wish that we could do three or four sermons on it. Uh, this isn't a college lecture series, so we, we can't do that. You guys would get bored and, and stop listening. But we're going to cover quite a bit today. Are you excited? Close enough. Let's do it. Hey, let's pray. God, uh, I ask right now that your word would bear its weight on us and that your spirit would give us ears to hear, that, that your wisdom would become relevant, that your spirit would, would illuminate these texts and that this wouldn't just be a whole bunch of facts or knowledge, but we would see your true story. We would find ourselves in the reality that you've given us. God, I pray that we would believe that for those of us that are struggling to believe, for those of us who, who have, have, are on some different spectrum of trusting, believing you, that we would all take steps towards trusting and believing in you as Jesus calls. Thank you for your love for us. Amen. William Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. Anyone know that quote? Anyone know what it's from? That'd be cool if you did. I, I memorized where it was from and then I forgot, so it doesn't matter. But 
I like that quote because it pulls out this basic understanding that everyone has a role they play. All the world's a stage. And you can take this really like uh, sarcastically and negatively and be like, man, nothing's real. They're all just a bunch of hypocrite actors. I don't think that's, I don't think that's Shakespeare's heart because he goes on in the poem to describe the seven stages of man and, and life. I think he's understanding that we live in a narrative. We live in a story, and all of us value story and narrative. In fact, uh, some authors have suggested that humans are narrative animals. That's, that's who we are. Humans make sense of the world through stories. Uh, if you start wrestling around with any entertainment, if you were to talk about what are things you enjoy, you find them in stories. There's a reason why you like the shows you like. There's a reason why you like the movies you like, the music you listen to. It's all story. When you talk about history, right, you find that it's a collection of stories, not just a collection of facts, because humans find themselves not in biological burps of random pieces of evidence, but in story. We're narrative animals. And in case you're like, duh, that's obviously true, move on. I just want to kind of push this point because I think sometimes we belittle the fact that, that we're all searching for a story to live in and that it actually guides our life. Neuro research is continuing to suggest that our brains are actually hardwired this way. Our brains have developed to only function in story. Neuro, uh, neurobiologist Mark Turner has this to say, story is the basic principle of how the human mind works. Most of our experience, our knowledge, and our thinking is organized as stories. Your life, my life, it's all shaped by story. In fact, if you were to just take a moment to think about today, this last week, it plays back like a story. Man, I remember when I said this thing. I remember when this thing was done to me. I remember that Yahoo and the Honda Odyssey on the way to church. Oh, man, those people and their Odysseys. Why doesn't everyone drive a Toyota? Whatever it is. And you remember a story. Whoa. I didn't know that was in me. It just came out. Honda Odyssey people. Yikes. The story you live in and believe shapes who you are and what you become. Or in short, the story you live in is the story you live out. Uh, when I was uh, going through a lot of addiction counseling and, and counseling things in my life and, and kind of culminated uh, early on before I got married and I was trying to not really ruin this beautiful thing God gave me with Nikki. It's the best story I have about how Nikki and I came together. I'll tell you about it sometime. But when I was wrestling through and I saw a counselor, I, I learned this pattern. There was a counselor that talked talked me through this. Um, it, it basically, any of you who've ever been to counseling or you understand counseling psychology, this is, this is life. This is humanity. The story we live in, or our interpretation, uh, some people uh, define as just the messages, the messages you've been receiving, but that's just the story. The story you're around, the things you're listening to, and your interpretation of that forms your beliefs, what you trust in. More on that in a minute, but beliefs and trust go hand in hand. You can't believe in something you don't trust. That's stupid. We'd all say that's foolishness. So they go together, um, and the biblical word goes together, belief and trust, by the way. That forms your feelings, and some would say actions. Some people can flip those. Actions and feelings can kind of be together. Some of you are like, I'm not a feely person. Stop talking to me, feely pastor. That's fine. Either way, feelings and actions go together. The point is, our interpretation of the story that we live in forms our beliefs or what we trust in, which forms our feelings and actions. This is life. That's what exists. And, and it's no wonder that the patterns we see around us in social media, they want you to post about your story, TikTok stories, these, these live feeds that constantly communicate snapshots of this is who this person is. This defines you, how you interpret the world. This is your story. And this leads us to live within reality with a capital R whatever that is. Philosophically, everything has to have some sort of objective source. It's not just random nothing, right? Because two plus two equals four. Fire is always hot. Gravity pulls us down. Like we have some sort of objective thing here. So we know that it's all pointing towards something. So even if, if you're here and you're like, I don't believe this Christianity stuff at all. This is stupid. We can at least agree on that. There is some objective something that patterns something because that's where we're at. This is story. And it is either trajecting towards a reality or we're going at odds with that reality. If I believe that gravity doesn't work, I'm going to hurt myself very quickly, right? I'm going to jump off the stage and break my leg. So I still live in that reality. I'm living in odds with it or towards it. So this begs the question, like, what if the story you're living is wrong or, or a partial story? I mean, you've seen someone's TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. You've heard a story that's off. You've heard someone tell you a tall tale and you're like, it, the turkey wasn't that big. You didn't shoot a turkey that big. 
The fish wasn't that big, whatever it was, right? You've heard of these stories. They're false stories, right? And, and so you have these wrong stories, partial stories. Uh, psychologists, some people call them historians, false narratives. Narratives in which people wrap themselves in, but they're based off false premises. And so everything following from that is wrong. Think about false narratives in our culture, maybe even in your life. Can someone have a false story of money? Do you know someone who's treated money inappropriately and lived at odds with the reality of money because money was the most important thing? Maybe that's you. Relationships. You know someone who lives in a, an, at odds with a true story of relationship, a broken relationship. And man, a relationship should look like this, but it doesn't. Do you have a famous movie that you like that's about broken relationships and restored relationships? Why? Because there can be a false story of relationships. What about race? Can people have different ideas about uh, race and ethnicity and culture? And those false ideas leading to all sorts of trauma and horrific parts of our history. Even today, sometimes the way we treat people, because we have a false narrative about what it means to treat other people who are different than us, how we should approach them. About work, careerism, this idea that, that I, I am the most important thing in my job and my money and how I settle in life. If I can graduate and form this niche and do these plans and settle it all, then I've really arrived. That's the story of life. What about gender? Make the whole story about gender. Everything comes back to, to who you're attracted to. Nothing is more important than your gender and, and who you're sexually desiring. Is, is, that, is that the true story? Is that the most important thing? About God. A.W. Tozer said, what you think, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Is it possible that you could have a false perception of God? In fact, when we do marriage counseling and we, uh, any sort of relationship counseling, one of the things we come back to is the idea that most problems in your life, most problems in your marriage, most problems with your girlfriend, boyfriend, most problems you have in high school, most problems you have on social media, come back to your relationship with God. It's a misunderstanding, a false story. Politics, pursuit of happiness, addictions. Man, how many people have you, have you been around that have an addiction in their life or just way too obsessed with politics and the rise and fall of Capitol Hill just really guides their life? Is that the truest story? What is the truest story? If we can have these false stories, we need to, well, how, how do we even have a shot? I would love to spend three weeks talking about Scripture and why Scripture is the authority, both philosophically, historically, culturally, uh, uh, spiritually. It just speaks for itself. I'd love to. I had all this stuff in my notes about what actual the definition of religion is, not the weird definition our culture is kind of adulterated to be, but actually historically what historians would say religion. I had all this stuff in my notes. I had to remove it for time. We don't have time to talk about this. But when you're talking about story, you have to be talking about Genesis 1 through 3 because the Bible is the truest story. The Bible is the truest story. Just for a little bit of philosophy here. What if there is a God? What if this objective source that is somehow connecting all things, what if that is God who loves you? And what if that God's trying to communicate to you? Would he do it subjectively just because of your feelings, what you think is right? How's that going for you and your culture? How's that going through history? It's terrible. What if God was trying to communicate to you through some sort of objective source? That, all, that requires to be studied and wrestled with because it's complex and difficult. This is the Bible. This is God's word. This is why I read it every Sunday. This is why we hold to God's word. It is the truest story. The Bible is utterly unique from all documents through all of history. Nothing like the Bible. In fact, again, things in my notes we don't have time for. But just think through. Uh, King Henry, Bloody Mary, uh, yeah, William Tyndale, all these people through history. People are literally getting burned because they translate the Bible to English. And then a few decades later, they say, oh, it's okay to have the Bible in, uh, Bible in English. Shouldn't have burned William Tyndale, but it's okay now. Don't worry. We recant of that. And then you have all these weird like Salem witch trials. You have all these things. But you take the Bible back. And even the Bible itself, there's times where people take Scripture and twist it. Satan himself takes Scripture and twist it. The prophets, uh, the, the bad prophets that the prophets write about, they take scripture and twist it. The Bible is so unique and it's so divisive. Because when you call someone's worldview, their lens, their religion, the, the principles that govern their life, when you call them into question, they're ready to fight. It's a core belief. It's the most important thing about them. It's their story. 
And when you call that into question, have you ever called an addict out on their addiction? Have you ever asked your spouse to put down their cell phone? Don't you ever talk about my cell phone. You're on your cell phone all the time. You shut up. You know what I mean? Come on. Like when you call someone out on something that changes their worldview, ready to fight. The Bible calls all lenses, all worldviews. It calls them out and says there is one true story. And there's a reason why it's the most controversial book of all history. It's the most censored, most argued book of all history because it's truth. In short, I wish we could unpack that more. Come next year, we're going to do a whole series on scripture as we go through uh, spiritual disciplines. For now, we'll leave it at that. The Bible is true. So let's talk about this. When we say things are true, I want to go back to Genesis 3. All right, uh, if you want to look at Genesis 3, Genesis 1 through 2 tells us the true story we are created to live in. God is good. God creates good things. He creates us in his image to create good things. That's what he created us to, to rule alongside him, to do everything for his glory. And that is our joy. If he is getting the glory more on this later, then we live in joy and happiness, in peace, in shalom. There's all sorts of concepts in this for scripture. And then you have Genesis 3, the serpent, more crafty than all the other creatures which can be deceitful, uh, can also just be more knowledgeable. Uh, It's a weird word in Hebrew. And the serpent says, what does he say? Did God really say? The first temptation, the first thing that twisted everything for us was lack of trust, was doubt. Did God really say? You can't trust God. What's the implication there? He's not really good. He won't really take care of you. You know who's going to take care of you? You. You know who the most important thing is? You. Your story. Your pursuit of happiness. What you got to say on Facebook. That's the most important thing. What you think about your gender. What you think about politics. That's the most important thing. In fact, all you got to do is eat the fruit because God won't take care of you. If you eat the fruit, God knows that you'll have knowledge of good and evil. That you'll be able to decide what's right and wrong. This is the message of Genesis 3. This is the pattern of all of human history. And we say, all right, who wouldn't want their eyes to be opened? Who wouldn't want to know? Come on. As soon as that happens, they realize they're naked. They separate from God. Sin is always a lie. The next chapter in Genesis 4 defines sin. Sin's crouching at your door. Chata in Hebrew. It's, it's this idea of believing a lie. There is truth. There is a true story. And sin is like, no one sins out of discipline. No one got up at 11.30 a.m. or 11.30 p.m. last night and said, ooh, well, I think I'll look at porn because I don't really want to, but it's 11.30 p.m. and I gotta, gotta look at porn. I gotta go have an affair. I gotta cuss out my family because it's, it's what I do on Saturday nights. Is that anyone's pattern? Like, no. We sin because of a lie. We have a false narrative. We have something. To, did God really say? Who's most important? You're most important. You got to take care of you. And all of the rest of the Bible is Genesis 3 on repeat. Us taking care of us. We live to our own drum. We decide good and evil. And I'm sorry that you've heard me preach that a hundred times. But I hope that we start believing it. That that's our struggle. That's our posture that we continue to fall. The whole Bible, Genesis 3. What do you believe? Who will you trust? Jeremiah 17, he writes it this way. Jeremiah 17, verse, uh, I think we're doing 5, 7, and 9. There's some really cool uh, leaf and tree imagery in here that we're going to skip. Go back and read it. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 9. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh. His strength, that sounds like Genesis 3, on repeat. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. Blessed, or happy, asher in Hebrew, happy, right, is the man who trusts in the Lord, who tr- whose trust is in the Lord. It gets repeated twice. Who trusts in the Lord, whose trust in the Lord. Verse 9, famous verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand? It's like Jeremiah's whispering. Here's what God says. And also, here's my little commentary. The heart is deceitful. What you think, what you feel, your willpower, what you hold as the most true thing, it could be deceitful. It could be a lie. It could be a false story. What if the Lord is trying to talk to you through Scripture to not put you at odds with reality, but tell you the true story? 
It's nothing like the Bible. Open your Bible to John 2. We're going to wrestle with what do you believe? What do you trust in? Because all of sin is a lie. The original thing of evil is, hey, can God really take care of you? Does God really trust you? Now with all this information, sorry for the long intro, now we're going to read John chapter 2. Are you pumped yet? Sorry, I just put a whole bunch of heaviness on you, but we're going to get real Bible nerdy here in a minute. It's going to be exciting. The reason we started with Genesis 3, the reason we go back is because John chapter 2 does something. John has a narrative now. It's not just about saying Jesus is this, 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 this. We'll look at that list here in a minute. But now it's Jesus does this. And John says this is the primary sign, the first sign, the origin sign. More on that here in a minute as well. The wedding at Cana has this really interesting thing to unpack because from John's perspective, it's everything. It goes all the way back to the beginning and all the way forward to new creation. It's everything. There's a reason why John put it at the beginning and scripture is so beautiful. John's crafty. The Lord is beautiful how he orchestrated John to write this and we're going to geek out over it. But I want to first remind us of John 20, 31. Here's what John says. Here's why he wrote John. John tells you, I wrote John, these things are written so that you may believe, trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, trusting, you may have life in his name. That mind, John chapter 2. I know some of you are like, oh wait, we're just now starting? Yes, we're just now starting the sermon. You'll be okay. It's okay. Whole lot, whole lot's come. This gets exciting. John chapter 2. I'm watching you not look at it. Come on, look at it. Oh, it's on the screen. Sorry. I didn't mean to offend anybody. We're friends here. God brought you here for a reason. I'm not rude. I just want us to read this. It's so exciting. Get pumped. Here we go. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding of his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Hold on to that verse. Verse 211. This, the first of his signs. Where it says the primary sign. The primary one, the origin sign. There are seven signs in John. Uh, Those who study, they call it the book of signs is this first part. And we're going to unpack that here in a second, right? But this is the first sign, his primary signs, the first of his signs, John tells us. And Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And it was for what? To manifest his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So this morning, we're going to talk about signs, we're going to talk about glory, we're going to talk about belief, right? I'm not really a three-point guy, but somehow I just realized I've got three here. So, whoops, I did the cliche thing. Signs, glory, belief. I want to show this links graphic just for a second, uh, so we remember this. Do you guys remember this, this thing we showed? Can we turn down the lights a little bit? Is that possible? We don't have to, but... um, So there's this idea that there's over 63,000 links to itself in Scripture. People who study Scripture, even if they're not believers, they understand that Scripture self-references itself more than any other book that's ever existed. It's utterly unique. There's nothing like the Bible. Every one of these lines that hoops, the colorful lines, is a reference back and forth. The lines underneath are the chapters of the Bible, the longest one right here being Psalms 119. Yes? You know that? Good. Okay, we're all together on the same page. So these are all the chapters of the Bible. And then these lines is a graphical representation of every time a chapter references itself elsewhere in Scripture. There's over 63,000 of these. You can bring back up the lights. Why does that matter? Because the Bible's awesome! And John wants you to see this. This is like new research. People are now having uh, algorithms and things to be able to graphically do this. But the Hebrews, this is all that was on their mind. When they read scripture, when they saw the story of the universe, the story of the world, they were saying, wait, everything's connected. Everything comes back to Yahweh. And Jesus says, yes, 
Everything comes back to me. And so the way John crafts this this narrative, the way he tells this story, he leaves us these clues to remind us, whoa, whoa, do you know who this is? Do you know who you're dealing with? This isn't just a neat party trick. This is everything. And so that's how we're going to read it. I'm going to start going through and I'm going to talk about these signs. Uh, We've got a lot to unpack. If you're a note taker, get after it, right? Because there's a lot of Bible geeky things here that should get you really pumped. If you're not a note taker, just remember that graphic, man. John wants you to see how all these things are connected. This isn't some weird conspiracy thing where we're like, whoa, look, there's the devil under every rock. That's not the point. The point is that the Hebrews who read this, the original readers of this would have seen, whoa, John's trying to communicate something. First, he says this is the first sign. Um, It's the primary sign. There are seven signs in John. Uh, There are other sevens in John. The first one, this says this is the third day. Uh, If you do the math on the days coming up, there's the original day. Then there's uh, times that it says the next day, the next day, the next day. So if you have the original day plus next day, next day, next day, you have four days. On the third day, which is three days after the last day, how many do you have? Four plus three? Seven. Seven. Now, I'm not the weird guy that's like, there's numbers everywhere in the Bible, man, and they're all connected. I'm a little bit like that because it's everywhere. And every scholar who studies this well would say, it would be foolish to not recognize the patterns there. Because Hebrews constantly use threes, sevens, and tens, and other numbers, but specifically three, sevens, and tens, sometimes two, to point back to Genesis. Because God spoke ten times. He created seven, right, in patterns of seven. Um, all these different patterns are there. I had a graphic to show you a lot of these things. I took it out because it can be boring for some people. But there are seven days mentioned here. There's seven signs. This is the first of the sign, and we're going to point them out every time we get to one. There are seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the book of John. There are uh, several other sevens there. I Man, there are so many. Um, in case we forget to mention in a couple weeks, uh, those of you who are Bible nerdy people remember the woman at the well? How many husbands should, does she say she has? She has five husbands, and Jesus says the man you're with now is not your husband. What man is she talking to right then? Jesus. He's the seventh man in her life in that story. Why does that matter? Because seven is the sign of, we've talked about this before, you guys remember? Perfection, completion. Why? What did God do on the seventh day? He rested because he was tired. Oh, it's tough work creating the universe. My good, because it was finished. It was completed. And the whole idea of Shabbat, of Sabbath, the reason you should have a pattern of Sabbath in your life is the Hebrews were supposed to have an idea, a pattern, a posture, a rhythm in their life of recognizing, you know who's in charge? God. You know who completes things? Yahweh. You know who I can look to and understand that even if my work's not complete and even if I'm not enough and even everything's broken? God. Because he promises rest. He created a world in which everything functioned the right way. And we messed it all up. And so if there's going to be rest, if there's going to be completeness, it's in him. And John's saying, this is the seventh day. Implying right from the shoot, third day, the seventh day, something's going to go on here. This is the primary sign of seven. This is something going on here. What are these signs supposed to be pointing to? That Jesus is the Messiah. Look in verse, uh, John verse 1, there's this list of all these things that are said about Jesus, right? It says that Jesus is uh, the Word, and the Word is made flesh. He's the true light. He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. Uh, they call him Rabbi, which means master, teacher. We talked about that a couple weeks ago with discipleship. He's called the Messiah, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, the King of Israel, the Son of Man, the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, the one whom Moses wrote in the law. This is what these signs are doing. It manifests glory. It's pointing that, hey, Jesus is all of these things. You're supposed to look back and say, whoa, John's showing just by this happening on the seventh day, just by this being one of seven signs, John's pulling you into a narrative. And I hope you understand, as you read a good story, if you read a good story, you want the beginning to draw you in. The Mollies were dead to begin with. I don't know why I quoted that. That was a weird one to quote off the top of my head. What is that? Dickens. Christmas Carol, the Mollies were dead to begin with. It draws you in. Is the idea of a good story. John's crafting this say, hey, come in. There's something big here. You're going to catch it. All these sevens. Look how John talks about this. First, we're going to talk about third day. Uh, Adam said last week that we'd be talking about this, and I wanted to make sure and not miss this. Um, So this is the third day. It makes the seventh day. Um, There's other days before this, which would point, hey, what are the other six days doing? Well, they're defining who Jesus is. That's what John's trying to pull you into. Check this out. On the third day, there's a theme here. The first third day mentioned in Scripture is, I can't ask you because I already put it on the screen. It ruins it. And you type A, people have already read this three times. I'm sorry. But the first third day is God created what? 
plants. He created life. He created those things and, and the seed bearing things. And where did they come up from? It specifically says in scripture, there's a theme here. They come up from the ground, right? And we've talked before about tovu vavohu, the waters, the spirit hovers over it. God organizes chaos, whole theme through scripture. God is the one who organizes chaos. We bring chaos, God organizes it. And you've got this rough ground that's created and he brings up life and seeded plants. There's an implication of a covenant there. We don't have time to talk about that theme, but these plants will, because they have seeds, then they have a seed or covenant with the Lord to do what? Why do plants have seeds? Come on, science. To have baby plants. That's right. To go and make plants. The first third day mention was life coming up from the ground. It's too good. Come on. Life comes up from the ground and the plants are going out there. The second third day mention, right? It's three days later. What comes three days later on the sixth day? Second, third. Humans, animals. Animals are going and, and being, they're going out. They have seed. Obviously, I don't need to explain the birds and the bees, but you get that. And then humans, we have a seed of covenant. In, in the uh, Genesis chapter 2, he says, go be fruitful and multiply. That's the, the second, third day mention. Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, it says in Genesis 22, on the third day. Again, you have this, hey, going up, going up a mountain, which Eden was up. They go up, he's going up there, and, and he's going to sacrifice. There's an atonement message there on the third day. There's going to be death. But instead of death, there's actually life. There's a creature caught in the what? In the bush! Coming up from the ground! An animal! Wow, that's too good! Everyone reading this again, they'd be like, oh my gosh, you see the links? This is Genesis 1 and 2. God is completing things. The next third day mentioned in Scripture is Mount Sinai. God mentions several times that he's going to come appear before his people with a marital covenant on the third day, that's in Exodus 19. Hosea says in Hosea 6, 1 and 2, that if you turn to the Lord, you will be resurrected on the third day. Come on, you guys have been to an Easter service. You see where this is going? The Bible is so much smarter than you. Isn't that incredible? I love it. You start seeing these things like, hold on. It's like, it's like the Lord wrote it. In John, uh, or three days is referenced 21 times in all the Gospels. Uh, it's mentioned here, John says, on the third day. And then the next section we're going to preach on next week or, or the week after, however it falls, um, Jesus says in 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it back up. The Lord brings, here's the main message here. Here's what John said. I mean, some of you are like, gosh, please get past the geekery. I can't handle it. Here's the main message. God brings life from chaos, disorder, and death. He does it on the third day to resurrect. And it's a theme all through scripture. And the reason that's beautiful is because scripture was written over several thousand years by tons of different cultures, by tons of different people in different socioeconomic patterns. And all of them tell the same story. And this is one theme of many that God is going to resurrect and bring new life on the third day. And John starts off by saying, hey, third day, Pay attention. Next, we find out this is at a wedding. If you're reading, just follow with me. I'm going to be going through some of these signs. We're in John chapter 2. Turns out they're at a wedding. Uh, look back at John. Uh, who's got it open right now? John 1.51. It says that Jesus says this weird thing to the disciples. And again, if you're used to chapter breaks and you're used to like things flowing that way, you got to remember originally chapter breaks and verse numbers weren't there. It was just a story and they're reading it. And so the last thing Jesus says is you will see the angels ascending and descending on the son of man. Poof, they're at a wedding, right? That's how the story goes. If you just rid your mind of like the chapter break and like the, the bolded print up there. So where else in scripture do you hear angels ascending and descending? Come on. Jacob's ladder, right. So Jacob, is Jacob a good guy or a bad guy? He's not great, right? He's kind of both, right? That's, yeah. And so, so he, he does this kind of schmuckery stuff. He does this bad stuff and he gets out and he's leaving and, and he has this moment where he sees this vision from God and he sees angels ascending and descending. And Jesus points back to that. He says, hey, I'm going to show you this, but they're going to descend and ascend on the son of man, which the implication is he's the one that's going to make all things right. And then the next story is a wedding. Do you know if you're in your Bible, what's the next story after Jacob sees angels and angels descending and ascending? The very next story. He goes to get a wife, Rachel, right? Is that a good experience or a bad experience for Jacob? 
It's a pretty rough experience because he has to do it twice and he gets lied to and it's a broken wedding and it's a messed up situation because his life is messed up and it's broken. It's not a perfect wedding. John's wanting you to open your eyes, say, hey, you know, Jesus Christ, this Messiah, he's better than Jacob. He's above Jacob. He's the one that makes the weddings right. He's the one that fixes these things. He's going to get his bride the first time in the right way with himself. He doesn't need this, this father-in-law nonsense that's going to get all messed up. Jesus is going to do it. You see? You see what John's doing? I know some of you are bored to tears. We're almost through it. We're going to keep going. Wedding goes through that. Why? Because there's weddings all through Scripture. It's a constant symbol to remind us. Is it possible that your marriage was given to you to point to the Lord and the relationship He wants to have with the world? Instead of, sometimes we think about it opposite. We think, oh, isn't it cute that we had marriage and God used that as an analogy? No, no, no. God was the analogy. God was always true. Marriage is a byproduct of the right relationship God wants. And that doesn't mean everyone has to go get married. Jesus covers that uh, singleness is a thing. God calls people that. I'm not saying that that's the next step for him in life. I'm just saying that things like marriage and parenting, they're meant to point to who Jesus is. They're meant to point to a right relationship with God. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Several times in scripture, you see this. Jesus says it over and over. Some people say he refers to this about seven times. I see a little bit more than that. So I think the Hebrew gets tricky there. But regardless, when is his time? Eventually you get to John 19 where he says, it is finished. Like a good author, John's pulling you in. Jesus says, hey, my hour's not yet come. And if you're watching a movie and someone says that, you're like, wait a minute. When does their hour come? Hold on. That's what John's doing. When's his hour coming? John 19, it is finished. Mary says, do whatever he tells you. It's a spinoff of what's said before, where he says, come and see, follow me, Jesus says, abide with me. This is a microcosm of disciples who are following him. And what happens to the servant? The servants are the one who do what he says, and they see the miracle. They see the right relationship. It actually emphasizes they're the ones who know. The master doesn't know. The bridegroom doesn't fully know. But the servants know because they do whatever he says. They see the world rightly because they obey Jesus. Six jars for purification. There's a lot that we could be said here. But we're just going to mention in general. There's a purification ritual that Hebrews had. We could talk about tons of different purification rituals. These jars could be a lot of different kinds of jars, right? They could be just for the marriage ceremony. They could be jars in general. They could have been somehow connected to uh, the temple worship. It's tough to know what these were. And I think John leaves it vague intentionally because the point is they're purification jars. They're meant for purifying and that alone. Something needs to be purified here. And Jesus says, hey, we're going we're gonna to use these. We're going to fill them to the brim. Fill them up. And they fill up these huge jars. They fill them to the brim because we need full purification. Some purification is needed. There's a broken wedding ceremony. There's a broken relationship. There's something that needs resurrected. The, the whole creation order is off. He says, fill them to the brim. Some scholars point to the number six here being uh, that the ritual purification itself was not complete. It was what God commanded and it was the, the goal and it was going to keep happening. But Jesus is the seventh completion of the purification. Oh, how beautiful is that? Come on. Now he turns water into wine. There's a lot that can be said on wine. In general, if you read every verse in the Bible that refers to wine, which I did this week, uh, it is for celebration. Wine is for celebration and to remember. What are we celebrating? To remember who God is. We're not talking about going and getting partying and getting lit. That's not the, the reference here. The celebration for why. Why are they celebrating is what matters. They're not celebrating so they're so slobbering drunk they forget. A lot of the verses in scripture that deal with wine talk about making wine your master. Being a hero of wine and that being a bad thing. Drinking, getting drunk, stupid. Not what God intended. Celebrating, seeing wine as something God has given to celebrate, to say, look to the Lord, because every festival where God wants them to have wine is to remember who he is and what he's done. Why? Because on the third day, God created the fruit of the vine. He created seeds. It reminds them of Eden when creation was right, that God is the one who gives an abundance, that he's the one that fills crops. And so you have this where Jesus does it. But wine also, uh, not just being a festival thing, it reminds them of creation, it reminds them of festivals, all for his glory and their joy. It also reminds them of blood. As we preach on a few weeks, John the Baptist said, behold, the son of man, or behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's a purification that's needed. Uh, to, to put it most simply, I'm going to quote Lecrae. Lecrae said in a song, without the cross, there's only condemnation. If Jesus wasn't executed, 
there's no celebration. Without the cross, only condemnation. We are condemned, separated from God. If Jesus wasn't executed, there's no celebration. Why are we celebrating? Because he's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. First Peter puts it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. We are purified by Jesus' blood. Jesus is representing in this story the new covenant, the new life that only comes on the third day, that comes up, that fulfills the seal of covenant. He's the true human. He's the true, true Adam. He's the true Jacob. He's the true Israel. He's the one that brings the fruit. He's the one that brings fulfillment. He's the celebration. He's the purification. Jesus is everything. And I'm sorry if all those Bible nerdy things bore you, but here's the point. John wants you to know, this isn't just a neat party trick. Poof, there's wine. Da, 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 da. John wants you to know, Jesus is everything. Look at all of Scripture. Jesus is fulfilling it. This is the primary sign. Think about Genesis 1 through 2. Water. The Spirit hovered over the waters, bring order to chaos. Then fruit of the vine. Jesus makes the best wine. And they're at a wedding. Jesus couldn't make this more clear. It's so obvious to everyone there, to everyone reading. So um, when we talk about these sort of things, uh, you can come back now, those of you who tuned out because I said Bible geekery and stuff. When we talk about these things, you might think about this picture. Um, so you might have seen this meme before. Who's seen this before? You've seen this. Come on. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't uh, uh, what's the phrase? Um, I don't support this show. I don't know much about this show. So, you know, don't go and watch this and be like, hey, Pastor David said watch this. I don't know anything about it. But I do. Here's what's interesting about memes and GIFs in our culture. Memes and GIFs are like a small microcosm of a bigger story. They represent an entire thought or story. It's like a little mantra. And so when we see this graphic, few of us are thinking about this episode. Those of us who've seen this, I've never seen this episode. I don't even know who that character is. But we've seen this graphic because it refers to just the concept of someone being like, guys, Look at this. It's a conspiracy. It's all connected. It's crazy. Whatever. You've seen this, right? Or maybe you have other memes and gifs that you've seen. They're microcosm stories. They represent out. So when we read John and you hear me explain all these things, you might start thinking this way. I think, hey, man, this is all over the place. You're just trying to connect dots. Calm down, pastor. This is my first time here and I can't even handle this. Calm down, right? I don't think that's what John's doing. I think, actually, that's kind of a, uh, joking with the, the pastors when we were meeting on Friday. This is kind of how I preach, I think. I'm always up here like, guys, get excited. You see how it's all connected? Everything is everything, and it's all, and your guys are just like, can you, like, talk half as fast so I can, like, hear what you're saying and, like, process all this? Like, I'm sorry. My notes are online. You can read them. But here's why I think John's doing this, because John wants you to catch this is his first sign that Jesus did at Canaan Galilee. It manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the backdrop of all of scripture. And John wants you to have it in your mind to say, hey, Jesus is everything. Say Jesus is everything. Jesus is Only Jesus can purify. Only Jesus brings us to joy, to celebration, to happiness. Only Jesus can fulfill the right creative order, the right relationship with God. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee to manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. Quick few thoughts on glory. In Hebrew, the word is kabod. Say kabod. Kabod means heaviness. We know this because if something hard's going on in your life, you say, man, that's really heavy. You got heavy news. It's a heavy time in life. It's just, oh. And this, there's a philosophical concept here that God's kabod, his heaviness, everything comes back to him. Think of like a, a orbit. Uh, sometimes we use that phrase on stage, orbit. Everything comes back to the Lord. He orbits it because he has all the weight. Jesus is manifesting his glory, the implication that he's manifesting objective reality in the Lord, everything that comes back to him. And all the time we want glory. We want to manifest our own glory, but you can't. The reason that your crushing desire to just pursue happiness, to just pursue the best relationship, to just pursue the most money, you want everything to come back to you, the reason that doesn't work when you trust in yourself is because you don't got glory. And all your glory ends. And if you had the glory of God, it would crush you. And it does crush you because sin is a lie. It's a lie that you can hold the things of God and you cannot. You are limited. You were not created to be limitless. That is who God is. 
Isn't it fascinating that all the things we want in our culture are postures to pull us to be limitless. Like the Tower of Babel, we can make a name for ourselves because we have new technology and we can become like the gods. And we keep growing and growing with our, our supercomputers in our pockets that are our, our test in um, our ability to be everywhere, omnipresence and all these things. Uh, nothing can limit me. Even my body can't limit me because my mind says that I'm different than what my body said. Nothing limits me. That's the cry of our culture. And God says, no, no, no. I have all glory. And these things are done to manifest Jesus' glory, the Lord's glory. Everything orbits him. And the only way you live in joy and happiness, we'll talk about this when we get to John 15. The only way you live in joy and happiness is to live for the glory of God. Everything else is broken. Everything else pulls you away. Lastly, it says his disciples believe. This is it. John 1 says those who believe in him will become children of God. And now in John 2, his disciples believed in him. They believed that he is the Messiah. They believed everything that lists from John 1 that he is. The word believe, pistis in Greek, it means trust. We can kind of parcel out all these different ideas of what it means. But to believe is to trust. This is why we start in Genesis 3. You can't believe in Jesus if you don't trust him. We've kind of reduced it to mental ascension, like facts. I know this. I've gained this. And we all want knowledge. I want to know the thing. Ooh, ooh, Pastor David talking about the third day stuff. Now I know third day stuff. It's all meant to believe. John didn't tell you this stuff. I'm not telling you this stuff so that you just have more Bible knowledge. So you go through your week walking a little taller. I know more about the Bible now. It's so that you will believe, that you actually trust him, that you quit trusting yourself. You quit taking the false narratives. You quit saying, I control my destiny. Whatever I want to do is what I want to do. I do what makes me happy, my pursuit of happiness. Say, no, no, no. There is a grand story. There's a grand reality. There's ultimate truth, and it only lands in Jesus. That's what John wants you to know. That's what I want to know this morning. His disciples believed in him. So the question comes back to you now as we move to close. What do you believe? What do you trust in? What do you hold to be true? Uh, go back to the graphic that has the arrows in it, Joe. I know that's several back. Sorry, bro. What story are you living in or you're interpreting around you that guides what you trust in your beliefs? Maybe work it backwards. What, what actions and feelings have you had today, this week? And you're like, hold on. Like, maybe, maybe I'm believing a false narrative. Maybe I really do care too much about whatever. Man, I'm just, I'm always struggling with this thing. Addiction, anger, distraction, tension, overwhelmed. What is it? How does it come back to what you're actually trusting in? What you actually believe? Jesus is the fulfillment. That's the point. Jesus is everything. Do you trust him to be everything, to believe? Do you trust Jesus to be the celebration, the best wine, that all things are fulfilled in him, that only through him can we find joy, happiness, what it means to be human? No one else died and resurrected for you. No one else can tell you how to be human. No president, no political leader, no cool podcast you listen to, no TikTok channel, nothing can tell you what it means to be human, only Jesus Christ, because he is the life. He died and resurrected. He's all we have. That's why Peter says he himself bore our sins on his body on that tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, a right relationship with him. By his wounds, you've been healed. As the band comes up and we move to uh, have a response, John wants you to look to Jesus. The point of all these things isn't just for me to study all the Bible geekery and to get excited and dump it on you. It's not to teach you all the third day and the sevens and, and the, the wedding postures. And that's why we did light on some of those things. John says he wants you to believe. And now his disciples believe, if we're just going by the narrative. And the implication is you should be his disciple and you should be believing. And when we say believe, immediately turn your brain to trust. Because we're not talking about just facts. I have a lot of facts in my head that I read that can't go through in this sermon. We don't have time. So many things I'd love to cover. And I can tell by looking on somebody else's faces, you can't handle anymore, and that's fine. I talk fast, I got a lot to say, that's fine. We don't have time to say all that, but the facts are what matters. It's what you trust in. What are you trusting in? Not just merely mental ascension. So when we ask, what is our story? What is the belief that we're holding in? I want to ask, 
if you trust in Jesus, do you believe that Jesus is everything, that he's the fulfillment? Are you experiencing his joy? Are you seeing his fulfillment as a trajectory in your life? It doesn't mean every day's great. We've got people in our church in the hospital today, and it's broken and sad. We have people who, who have babies that were born early, and, and it's concerning and fearful. We've got a lot of heavy things going on. That doesn't mean that every day is gumdrops and rainbows. It means that we have something secure, objective. We have boundaries to hold to because we have a sure God who created things that says he is in control of all things. We can trust in him. We don't trust in ourselves because as we trust in ourselves, we adulterate it. We twist it. We get off. What do you believe in? Do you trust in Jesus? What story, if you look on your days, your weeks, what is your money? What is your time? What does your energy say about the story that you trust in? The applications that I'd want to push is to trust in Jesus. We list all the time prayer, church, and scripture. What is your relationship with prayer? Sitting before the Lord and talking to him and listening to him. What is your relationship with scripture? Reading about him, knowing him, grow to know God deeply. And what is your relationship with the church where we come together as one body? If you're new here, Our big thing is that we follow Jesus together as one body. That's why we emphasize. We grow to know God uh, deeply. We connect each other authentically. We need each other. God never created heroes. He created a people, one body, from Israel all the way to the church. It's always been about a people, his creation, all working together. And so maybe you need to think about your relationship with the church. Maybe your narrative's off because you're constantly looking to all these things around you that aren't his people seeking him as one body. Maybe you need the church need to read scripture, you need to pray. Maybe that's your application this week. I would encourage you to grab one of these John books and just wrestle with scripture. What if there is a God who wants to talk to you? And church, I'm talking to you. If you're a committed believer in Jesus, look at me. If you believe in Jesus, if you're a committed member of Memorial, just talking to you. We don't get people here to hear the gospel because I'm the sickest preacher in town or because Nathan's got long flowing locks and can play four instruments at a time. I hope to God that's not why people are here. We get people here because of King Jesus. And all those people get here because someone brought them. Every single person in here has a story that someone invited them to church. I can't emphasize enough. The servants, they did what was Jesus said. That's why John put that in there. It's a microcosm of the rest of the story. The disciples followed Jesus. And then they all betrayed him. Then they all come back and they receive the spirit and they go and change the world in the name of Jesus Christ because they go and they listen to Jesus. They bear his celebration, his testimony that only he can purify. By his blood, you're healed. And so if you're a member of this church and you're not inviting people in, you're not, I mean, we've got a, such a simple thing here. Our culture's so divided. No one knows what to do with all this junk. They're all arguing about it. Take one of these books, take it to work, take it to your family and say, hey, our church is reading about Jesus and we're figuring it out. We're following him. That's how people get here and hear the gospel. Talk to people in your life about King Jesus. If you're not, then what story are you talking about? Again, I'm just talking to the church. Those of you who believe. What story are you talking to people about that you think is so important? What is it that you've got to post on Facebook all the time that's so important? Why isn't it King Jesus? His life, death, and resurrection. If you want to stand, we'll be down here to pray with you. I'll be down here. Adam will be down here. If you need to join the church, give your life to the Lord. If you've never trusted in him, if there's something in your life you're not trusting in, you're like, man, I've got I to pray. I got to spend time, Lord. We'll be down here to pray with you. I encourage you. This is your time. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. This is your time to response. Respond. We put this time in here because we can't just all hear a whole bunch of words and just go. We need time to respond. We need time to process. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would guide us as we respond. I believe your spirit speaks through your word. We believe that you're with us. You tell us that when we're gathered in your name, that you're here with us. I pray that the power of your spirit would move. Despite uh, if there's anything wrong that was said, if too much was said, too little was said, whatever was done, God, we trust you. We want to sing your words. We want to pray your words. We want to preach your words, show your word. May we be people that follow the way of Jesus. And I pray right now for those who need to trust in you, whatever step they need to take through, through their prayer life, their scripture life, their, their church life, whatever it is, God, I lift up that you would respond, uh, you'd guide us to respond in your spirit, that these things would be through you and how you move in us. Show us as a church how to respond as one body, how to go and declare the gospel boldly. 
thank you for your word. Thank you for all the connections, all the ways you constantly show us that you're with us, that you have all authority. We trust in you, Jesus. Thank you for giving us life through our belief in you. Thank you for salvation. Amen. If you need me, I'll be down here.